Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and today in Focus in Africa, we're talking about why Mauritania is a hub for undocumented migrants making their way to Europe. We're in conversation with Aisha, one of the African students who had to flee for her life when the war in Ukraine broke out two years ago. We thought, okay, maybe we still had a little bit of time to, you know, buy plane tickets and maybe go back home. You thought you had time to um, prepare? Yes, that was what we thought. So um, the list included, you know, pocket knives, torchlights with batteries, canned food, like, you know, basic things you need in case an apocalypse happened. And bamboom or bamboozled, we're talking about the growing demand for what's being called the wonder plant. Bamboo is one of the fastest growing species or grass in the world. It can help create income opportunity by utilizing it for other products like furniture, craftsmanship, protection of the environment as a potential source of fodder and feed. It's Monday the 26th of February. First, we go to Mauritania. The movement of people, that is migration, is certainly the story of our times. Thousands of people from across the world are forced to leave their homes and move for a multitude of reasons. Extreme poverty, lack of job opportunities, conflict. Those on the move believe that migration is their last hope for themselves and for their families. Mauritania has become one of the primary points of departure for African migrants attempting to reach Europe. But the route from there, around the bulge of Africa, along the stormy Atlantic, is very dangerous. More dangerous than the others, according to Bubakar Saibu from the International Organization of Migration in Mauritania. So why are more people using it? We have an increase of using the Atlantic roads. It became popular because, you know, uh, migrants who try to reach the uh, Canary Island, the number increased and, you know, that uh, Mauritania is a transit and destination country. Migrants coming from neighboring countries, mainly Mali, Senegal, and also Guinea, Cote d'Ivoire, and Gambia, you know, came here and uh, tried to reach the Canary Islands. Why has it become busier in recent months? Because I think that uh, some uh, way maybe might have some much more challenge for migrants to use as a um, transit country. We have also to recognize that Mauritania is also a destination country for some migrants. So they used to come here in order to find jobs you know, in some area in order to be able to make the journey. So this increase can be linking in different factors, you know, not only on the way we are seeing, but also the fact that some neighbor countries, you know, uh, experience uh, war and violence. And uh, and also we have the situation 
linking to climate change. So there is a lot of factor. You say it's a destination country. So how many migrants are there in Mauritania and how do they get treated when they're there? You know, this is a statistic. We have around 130,000, maybe more. They came here because they can find some job here, you know, in terms of uh, construction, uh, fishing, and so on and so on. So basically, this is why there is some kind of attraction, but also they can make some money in order to pay their, their travel to, to Europe. How do they then move onwards? You say they want to go to the Canary Islands. Why is that a destination? And is it easy for them to go from Mauritania to the Canary Islands? The Atlantic route is one of the most dangerous ones. So we cannot say that they can go uh, easily. But, uh, you know, um, the smuggler used to send some, uh, you know, some information on how they can help them. It is not true, but it's the first information they are using to convince people. Even we register a lot of people who lost their lives. The smuggler tried to convince them that it is easy, which is not true, because we know that the Atlantic route is one of the most dangerous routes. Okay, so um, the head of the European Commission visited Mauritania recently and promised over 200 million euros to help Mauritania cope with migrants arriving and to stop migration to Europe. Do we know what the government intends using the money for and how they'll use it? First of all, I think definitively any additional support to the Mauritanian authorities in order to improve the migration governance. We already, you know, support the government to elaborate a proper strategy uh, to address, included in terms of, uh, you know, search and rescue, which is the capacity is still uh, low. So what else would that policy involve then? Search and rescue, you say, which is incredibly important given that the crossing is so dangerous. What else? We have search and rescue. As I say, we have also... You know, all the aspects in terms of protection migrant, because I think that the first thing which is important in this sector is to save lives. Uh, the athletic route is imprevisible, so definitely one, it is one of the key areas that we are supporting the government. Do Mauritanians make the crossing as well? Do they also want to leave the country to go to Europe? It's something that we uh, uh, register recently. Just these uh, few weeks, we observe uh, in some boat there is Mauritania, which is a new, what I can say, new phenomenon. But it's not the most important, you know, portion of, uh, you know, or, or number. Why do you think more Mauritanians are leaving in this way? It is early uh, to give you clear understanding of this situation. So what would you say to people listening now who are considering getting to Mauritania and then trying to get to Europe? Unfortunately, we have a lot of tragedy and this is the reality. So I think that it is not just to call to migrants, but also it's important to call to all stakeholders, including the state, to work in order to give people choice. So included in country of origin, but also in country of destination by providing regular pathway for migrants. I think that this is uh, all about this situation. Bubakar Saibu, thank you so much for your time.
Thank you very much. Bubakar Saibu is with the International Organization for Migration and he's based in Mauritania. The war in Ukraine broke out almost exactly two years ago. And as the days unfolded, we began to hear about the difficulties African students were experiencing as they tried to leave to reach safety, along with tens of thousands of Ukrainians. They told us how they were shot at, subjected to racist abuse, and threatened as they fled across the Ukrainian border into neighboring countries like Hungary and Poland. Two years on, and we've been hearing what's been happening to some of them. If you listen back to Focus on Africa to Friday's edition, you hear the story of Haifa Juma, who told us why she returned to Ukraine to continue her medical degree. Today, we are hearing from Aisha, who fled to the Netherlands, where she still is. But she took me back to that scary day when it all began. A day before, my school sent me an email, not just me, but like, I think all the students giving us like a list of what to do in case of a war. And that was really shocking because, I mean, this had never happened before. We've always had rumors, but it had never gotten so serious that, you know, they would tell you these are the things you need in case a war happens. And it was in the middle of winter. And anybody that knows what Ukraine is like, winter is crazy. You are knee deep in snow. That was when it started, you know, getting a little bit real. So what did they say? Mm-hmm. What does one need in case the um, war breaks out? And especially so the was, day before the war breaks out. Yes. We didn't know, at least amongst ourselves as students, that the war was going to start the next day, right? We just thought, okay, what is this? We thought, okay, maybe we still had a little bit of time to, you know, buy plane tickets and maybe go back home or somewhere else. I don't know. You thought you had so, time to prepare? Um, Yes, that was what we thought. We thought, okay, maybe school already, authorities already got maybe more information from the government. So um, the list included, you know, pocket knives, torchlights with batteries, canned food, like, you know, basic things you need in case an apocalypse happened. Those were the things that were in the list. I can't really remember right now because it was like more than two years ago. Right. Right? Okay, so let's go. Let's go for February the 22nd in the middle of the night. The apocalypse is upon you. I was sleeping. I was sleeping. Then by 5 a.m., I got a call from a friend that was staying in another building, I think. She called me and she told me that, oh, did you hear what happened? I'm like, I mean, I'm sleeping. What happened? Then she told me they, they are bombing Kiev and Kharkov. I'm like, what? Are you serious? You know, I woke up immediately. Obviously, I was really shocked. I didn't know what to do. So I ended the call. I tried to grab my passport because, you know, if you are a foreigner in any country at all, the first thing you need is your documents, right? Because if you don't have your documents, it's it's hell for you. So that was the first thing I grabbed, my passport and my resident permit card in Ukraine. And, you know, I was just confused. I didn't know what to do. Then I lived in the hostel, yes. So there was a lot of commotion, I think, um, the news had already started spreading, so everybody was confused. So I didn't know what to do. Then I just, you know, sat on my bed. Then, you know, my friends and I were just in the same place trying to figure out what to do. Next thing was to try to go to withdraw some money in case you needed cash. So I got to the ATMs. It was 
I've never seen anything like it before. And I'm from Nigeria, right? <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, we run out of cash at the ATM, so you have to have long lines. But I'd never seen anything like it before. It was terrible. The food stores were empty. All the shelves were empty. There was nothing. And I mean, prior to that day, I I had some food stuffs at home. But, you know, as a student, you, you don't really have much. You don't have like a, a stockpile of food yeah. or water or anything. Yeah. So it was just really scary. And then I, Sumi, my city, borders um, Russia. They had to pass through Sumi to get to wherever they were going to. So, you know, I so saw did, soldiers. So did, you, so did you see soldiers passing through? Yeah, I did. I did see soldiers. I saw war tanks. It was scary, but I didn't know who they were, whose side they were on. I didn't know whether they were Russians or Ukrainians. So they were just passing through um, our city. So it was really a, a strange sight. Yeah. So now mm-hmm. thinking back on that time, do you remember how you felt? You say you were scared, but were you yeah. really, really scared or? Were you thinking, ah, it's not so serious. It'll probably calm down. When I heard the first time, before I saw things that were going on, I was scared. I was scared, but I wasn't so scared. You know, when you hear, oh, there's a war, you don't really think it's something that can happen so close to you, right? When did it become real to you? So when I went out to try to get some money and to try to get some food, that was when it became real because there was no food. This is something that you see in movies. You see it in movies, you see these things happen and then you don't think it can happen in real life. That was uh, when the fear started really becoming something serious for me. Right. So did you immediately think about leaving or did you think you'd be able to sit it out? We really did think we were going to sit it out because even if we wanted to leave, like I said, we were in Sumi. So if you heard anything about what happened then, Sumi was one of the cities that was held hostage. We couldn't leave. The bridges were bombed. It was hell, basically. We didn't have food. A lot of times we didn't have water. We had to melt snow to try to get some water to drink. That was how terrible it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a friend that had a car. The guy and like a couple of other people you know, we were in the car to try to drive out. Then I don't know how far we had gone from the city or if we were still in Sumi. Only for us to see, like, you know, cars, like, turned over and burnt to a crisp, basically. Then out of nowhere, a couple of soldiers came out with their tanks and they were like, oh, where are you going? You know, speaking in Russian, saying basically, I don't know if they were actually Russian or Ukrainian. I don't know about that. They were shouting a couple of things at us and then they brought out their guns and started shooting at us, basically. Oh, no. They shot at our tires. So that made you realize you can't go. How did you eventually leave and how long did you have to, you know, stay in Ukraine before you could leave? So um, I'm part of a church program a church and it was called pentecostal church of some piwc i think the church had like a they have like a lot of branches in different other countries you know so i think they were able to come together to like make an outreach or something so though we had to pay i did have to pay some people we all did have to pay for our space in the car so they were able to get a couple of taxis and taxi drivers that were willing to drive us through another route that wasn't blocked apparently a lot of people didn't know about the route that wasn't blocked. So that was how we were able to get out. Then, But I think two days later after we left, Red Cross was able to come in and negotiate a ceasefire or something. So they were they were able to allow like international students and women and children to pass through. So where did uh-huh. you go to? 
Yeah, so after I, from Sumi, I went to Nihorod, which is a city close by to Sumi. Then from there, I went to Hungary. And after Hungary? After Hungary, I was in Portugal. And then you went to the Netherlands where you are now? Yes, yes, yes. Ooh. <laughs> how long was your how long did it take you from the time that you left to get mm-hmm. to the Netherlands? So I left Ukraine on the eighth of March twenty twenty two. I basically got into Hungary on that same day. So, you know, we stayed around for a while, you know, trying to figure out what next because I had only two shirts with me. I didn't have any underwear, nothing, a little cash. So that was what happened. Then I got a call from one of my cousins, you know, in the UK. So she was able to send me a little bit of cash, not a little, like a tangible amount to, I don't know, move around because, you know, though we were getting help, if you didn't have a Ukrainian passport, you didn't get the help that you needed to be able to move, to be able to do the things you needed to do. So, um... Basically, we're just moving around, you know. Then we also got this, I don't know if you heard, there was this Airbnb stuff that they were doing then that you could get a voucher to get an apartment for one month to try to figure out. So I was able to get one of those vouchers to rent an apartment. So while moving around, I can't remember exactly when, but I went to Portugal because I heard that maybe they could be given permits to stay for longer because Hungary gave me, I think, 30 days, you know, to try to figure out what I wanted to do and move on, obviously. Yeah. I just lost my whole life in Ukraine. 30 days is not enough for me to try to figure out what I need to do. So I had to go to Portugal from there. And in all of that time, is your university helping you? Are you continuing with your studies? Oh, Are there any support structures? Is there any advice that they're giving you? When the war started, the school shut down for, I think, a month. Yeah, we didn't start school back until I think ending of April or so. I can't remember but the school was shut down throughout the whole journey process so they didn't help at all. That was just what I was going to say. Like while we were in Ukraine and while we left, they didn't help. They were just telling us to stay put in our hostels even though they were bombing our hostels. Not our hostels per se but I did literally see two rockets flying over my head when I was in the hostel so obviously I didn't feel safe but anyways they were uh, they didn't help they didn't help at all right and so when did yeah. you reestablish contact with school I mean did you did you go back to school because yes, obviously you um, had to finish the year so um, the first thing I did was I tried to ask them to get my transcript. Then the school basically told me that if it was basically a threat, that if you wanted to get your transcript, you had to expel yourself from the university for you to have a copy of your transcript. So they really yeah, weren't so, helpful. Yeah, they, went, they were really nasty. I'm not going to lie about that. Aisha fled to Ukraine at the start of the war and she's now in the Netherlands. And you can listen to part two of Aisha's story tomorrow. As the planet shows signs of being really, really stressed by human behavior, we've been on the lookout for new ways of doing things that cause less damage as a species, of course. Some would say we're not doing nearly enough. But an initiative to increase bamboo production being taken up by more and more countries appears to be another step in the right direction. Bamboo is a tree-like plant which grows tall and it grows quickly. It also absorbs the greenhouse gases which cause climate change. 
It is also being used as an alternative to plastic. As a result, the global market for bamboo is, in a word supplied by my colleague Rob Wilson, bambooming. In fact, the global bamboo trade is estimated to be worth around $7 billion. Tanzania is just the latest country to get in on the action. Ghana launched a similar strategy three years ago. Togo and Nigeria are soon to follow. Ethiopia is the biggest producer on the continent. I'm wondering, though, are we being bamboozled by the benefits of bamboo? Not so, according to Michael Kweku, the West Africa Regional Director for the International Bamboo and Rattan Organization, or INBA for short. Bamboo is a versatile resource with a long history of utilization in Asia and Latin America. However, it's often overlooked in discussion about Africa, despite its abundance in many parts of the continent. There is now an urgent need to develop and tap into its potential as a nature-based solution to many global challenges. Explain to me why do you think that African countries should cultivate bamboo? You're saying that it occurs naturally. Bamboo is a versatile resource and abundant in Africa, and its utilization can usually help create job opportunity for many youth, especially the smallholder farmers. What is it about bamboo that makes it that way? Because there are other crops that do the same, no? Why is bamboo special in this regard? Bamboo is one of the fastest growing species or grass in the world. And in other parts of the world, like India, they refer to as the poor man's timber. It can help create income opportunity by utilizing it for other products like furniture, craftsmanship, for weaving, for environmental solutions, protection of the environment as a potential source of food and feed. And it can also help reduce the pressure on our existing forest pressures where many African countries are depending on the timber resources, both for uses and also for exports. Fortunately, bamboo, when able to know the technology in utilizing, can equally serve the same purpose as timber or as a wood product. That makes it one of the best potential material which it can be used to supplement the forest sector to help reduce deforestation. But is there a danger? Because now if you start cultivating it as a cash crop, almost, is there a danger Mm -hmm. that trees that may be cut down to plant bamboo and that leads to deforestation in itself? Or is bamboo good good for the environment? Bamboo is very good for the environment. And the interesting part of it is that uh, you don't need to destroy arable lands to plant bamboo. Bamboo can strive very well in marginal lands along river bodies, and you can also institute agroforestry measure if you want to even develop as a cash crop so that you don't destroy any timber or any forest or destroy any crops to plant bamboo. But you know, human beings being what we are, the market in bamboo products is growing. I noticed, for instance, that plastic disposable Cutlery is now being replaced by bamboo products in various takeaway shops here. My bed linen is made of bamboo and it's been for the last 10 years or so. So there's a definite growing market in bamboo. Is bamboo just the next big thing that we're exploiting 
or are there ways in which we can institute the use of bamboo that takes advantage of all the benefits of bamboo? Right. So to begin with, we are introducing sustainable bamboo harvesting for harvesters and for farmers, because if you're able to take them through sustainable harvesting, they are not harvesting them to endanger the clump or the stance of bamboo. I know there's growing demand for bamboo, as you said, for plastic substitute. The advantage is that um, bamboo has less disadvantage to the environment. You can manage it very well to benefit your both the cash crops or income generation at the same time protect the environment. Even if you have to dispose it of, it's highly degradable that it doesn't have any adverse effect on the environment. You say that it occurs naturally in several African countries. Have people used it previously and what did they use it for? Yes, initially bamboo was predominantly used in Africa, mainly for fencing and other garden products and the rest. But now with the intervention of Imba's activity of promoting bamboo in Africa, we've been able to extend some transfer of technology where now bamboo can be used for weaving products, making of bags, making for furniture, toothpick production. And then just interesting to know that uh, Africa for several years has been importing toothpick from Asia. But now many African countries like Ghana, Cameroon, Ethiopia are able to produce bamboo toothpicks. And toothpicks are important, right? Toothpicks are very, very important. And um, apparently bamboo shoots are a delicacy in eastern Uganda that you, when you have a very important visitor, you give them bamboo shoots. I've just forgotten the name that my colleague Paul told us uh, what it's for. And for the benefit of our listeners, I should say that INBAR is the International Bamboo and Rattan Organization, which is the organization that you represent. So you're in Ghana and Ghana launched a bamboo strategy a few years ago. Tanzania has just launched one. Tell us what impact has bamboo production have on the country? How has it benefited farmers and cultivators? You know, until we start launching the bamboo strategy document for many parts of Africa, starting from Ghana, the aim was to ensure that the government gave a priority to bamboo production in Africa. And as a result of that, the government of Ghana, for instance, has instituted bamboo as part of Eat Green Ghana program, which is launched every year, sometimes planting about 10 million trees, which always, at least, we be planting bamboo species as part of the government target of planting trees, integrated bamboo in them to help mitigate carbon emissions and also to help reduce environmental degradations. You know, Ghana happened to have unfortunate incident of illegal gold mining. And bamboo is being used as one of the materials for restoring some of this damaged environment or lands and also help do what they call the phytoremediation of the metals polluted by the unfortunate incident of illegal gold mining. Okay. Thank you so much for your expertise. That's fine. That's Michael Kweku, the West Africa Regional Director for the International Bamboo and Rattan Organization, also known as INBA. Focus on Africa was put together by Rob Wilson, Noor Abida, Yvette Twagira-Maria and Patricia Whitehorn. Carney Sharp brought it all together. Our technical producer was Philip Bull and he made sure we got on air and online on time. Do find us, like us and subscribe to the Focus on Africa podcast. 
you won't be disappointed. Andre Lombard and Alice Mudengi are our editors. I'm Audrey Brown, and we'll talk again next time. The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts.